let me read for us just a passage of scripture out of Psalm 37. Uh, the Bible says, trust in the Lord. This is the words of David. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And then these words I think are important for us to remember this morning. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord and be patient. Wait patiently for him. It's hard to wait patiently on the Lord at times, isn't it? Because we grow impatient. And we need to wait on his word. We need to wait on him to move. And Maybe you've been waiting for a long time and you've been praying for a long time. Keep praying. Wait on the Lord to work. Wait on the Lord to move. And let's pray together this morning. Father, as we come to you, we, we know that you're a God who sees, a God who knows. You're a God who, Lord, understands, a God who, Lord, has a great um, just understanding of our lives and understanding of our homes and understanding of this world so much better than we do. We know you are a God who is trustworthy you are a God, Lord, that is worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience, and worthy of our devotion. Every day, Lord, we know these things. We understand that your word, Lord, points out and helps us understand that, God, you are worthy of these things. And yet, Lord, in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, we are prone to wander, as the great hymn of the faith says. Our eyes and our ears, our hearts, Every day is a spiritual battle in our hearts, and we know this, Lord. And we know that you're worthy of our worship and worthy of our time and worthy of our obedience, but, Lord, we know that we wander from you so quickly in our lives. We can worship you on a Sunday morning, and we can sing songs to you, and we can listen to what your word says to us, and we can affirm it, and then, God, we're so prone to wander from you. And we just want to tell you this morning that we're sorry. And we just want to confess that to you. And we want to repent of that this morning. Because God, we know that we are frail. And we know that, Lord, we are broken. And apart from you, Lord, apart from your grace and apart from your mercies, we are lost and we are, have no hope. But we do have hope. And Lord, we confess these things to you, and we pledge our faith in you this morning. We commit our hearts to you this morning. We, Lord, choose this morning to worship you and you alone. Because, Lord, we know that on, this, on the face of this earth, there are thousands of gods that people worship. We worship ourselves so many times. But there is only one God who is worthy of our worship and worthy of our time and worthy of our repentance, and it's you. And we thank you this morning for the work that your son Jesus has done on the cross and from the grave that gives us the hope, the ability to turn away from sin and know that, Lord, 
We don't do it in our own strength, but we do it in the power of the righteousness that has been applied to us through Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, this morning as we've already prayed to you and invited you into our service and invited you into our hearts and into our homes and into our marriages. And Lord, we thank you that you're the one. Holy Spirit, you're the one who comes into our hearts and enables us to say no to sin, to say no to the things that, Lord, bother us and plague us every day and every week. Your word says, Lord, that if we commit our way to you, if we trust you, that you will act. You bring forth your righteousness in the light, your justice in the noonday. You, Lord, tell us to delight in you, and you will give us the desires of our hearts to commit our ways into your hands. And we want to do these things t- this morning, Lord. We want to commit, and we want to delight, and we want to trust. And Lord, these are promises, and we believe in your promises, and we believe in the power of your promises, the power of your word. We believe it's truthful, it's trustworthy, it's worth living our lives anchored to. Some of us have been praying for some things for a long time. God, we trust you that your will is going to be done in these these areas. You worry about the completion or fulfillment of those promises or those those prayers, Lord, what you call us to is to trust, to be still, to commit, to delight. And so would you find us, Lord, in that regard this morning? Would you find our hearts there this morning? We give this time to you, Lord. Thank you for the time we've had to sing. Thank you for the time we've had to worship you. But Lord, we want our hearts to change. We want our lives to be lives and families and a church. We want to be a church that, Lord, is is worth coming to and worth engaging in. And we want our homes to be homes that, Lord, honor and glorify you. We want our church to honor and glorify you every time we gather together. God, would you do this work in us? And so we give you this time, Lord. We pray that you'd open our hearts and open our ears and open just our eyes to see and hear the things that you want us to see and hear. Lord, we believe that your word changes us. It transforms us if we allow it to because your Holy Spirit does this work in us. So would you do this work in us, Lord? We give this time to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Good morning. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 5. You see, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Joshua chapter 5 together. And uh, uh, I'm excited about uh, what God's going to show us and teach us this morning. You know, when it comes to uh, anything in life, uh, what the Lord really wants us to understand and see is that everything typically uh, requires some sort of preparation. We prepare for Uh, a service. For example, this service was long prepared for before this morning. There were time, there was time, there were decisions, there were people involved, there were lots of little decisions that were made that went into this service. Uh, We prepare ourselves to come to worship, don't we? Uh, You prepare for lots of things in your life. Uh, We prepare for school, and if you are in school or you remember being in school, you remember preparing for tests and for projects and for papers. They don't just happen by accident. You prepare for them, right? You prepare for work. 
those of you who are working and those of you who have companies, maybe small businesses, already you have the things, the tasks that you have going on that are currently in the middle, that you're in the middle of working on. Maybe you stopped them on Friday or yesterday and you're taking a brief break, but you're going to start right back on those projects. I know I am when it comes to things that, that matter to our work. You prepare for those things. We prepare for lots of things in our life, and here's the thing. When you don't prepare for something, it typically shows, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it? When you don't prepare for something or you leave it to the last minute or you just kind of wing it, then it shows. It typically shows. It usually doesn't go well. Some of us can get by on, on talent alone or ability alone, and we don't necessarily have to prepare, but that'll only get you so far. Preparation is important. Now think about where we are in the Bible this morning, because here's the thing. The question that I think we come to when it comes to this text, and we're going to walk through this little story here in Joshua 5, on the front part of Joshua 5, the question really comes to you and I, and that is this, what, who are the type of people that God uses? God's people here are preparing to go into the promised land. But what is the type of people that God uses, his people? What kind of qualities, what kind of character, what does it look like that when it comes to God's people? Because here's what I know. When it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are naturally spiritual people, but it's not about what we know. It's about the things that we do. But here's the thing. Even the things that we do, God calls us sometimes to something more than just doing spiritual things, like coming to church or, or doing Christian things throughout the week. God calls us to something more. So what are the types of people that God uses? What is the type of people that God is going to use here as we see as his people are entering the promised land. Think about where we are, the first four chapters of Joshua. We've walked through these over the matter of several weeks. God has been preparing his people. They do not have rest. They haven't had land. They haven't had the blessing, and they haven't received the life, right? These are the things that God promised Abram, Abraham. These were the things that God had, was going to give that first generation, right? That he brought out of Egypt, and he brought them on the cusp of going into the promised land, and they rejected him, and he sent them back into the desert for 40 years. Now we have this second generation of God's people, and the second generation are not led by Moses. <clears throat> they are led by Joshua, and God is going to elevate. He's going to raise Joshua as the new spiritual leader of his people. But think about what God has done in the first few chapters here. Joshua 1, God comes to Joshua himself and says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You are not alone. You have not been abandoned. And so what do you, how in which you respond to me, Joshua? God says to Joshua, listen, you be strong and courageous. He says it three times here in chapter 1. Joshua is then going to turn and talk to his people, God's people. And he's going to say, we need to be strong and courageous. We need to follow God. And the people take him up, take God up on this offer that if you follow me, if you obey me, if you do the things that I want you to do, things will go well for you. You will receive these blessings. You will receive the life. You will receive the land. You will receive that rest that you've longed for, that you've been wandering in the wilderness, not receiving. And every stage, listen, church, every stage in Joshua 1, 2, 3, and 4, God has been preparing his people 
In Joshua chapter 2, we know the story, right, of when the spies go into the land and they go into Jericho and they come back. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 24, the 24, the spies look to Joshua and look to the people and say, God's given us the land. He's already provided for us. And so they take him up on the offer. Joshua chapter 3, we know the story of God then sends his people across the, 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 the Jordan River. He has done this in generation 1 with the Red Sea. He's going to do it here in the Jordan River. And he, so he sends his people across the Jordan River, but not before the Ark of the Covenant goes into the water. And the priests go in. As soon as the priests step into the water, then the Jordan River is dammed up. And it's there that the people of God crossed before the Lord. They, they had to be led by the Lord. And the presence and the power of God is manifested that day in Joshua chapter 3. Joshua 4, we saw a week ago how God's people come and they walk across the Jordan River. And what does God tell them to do? I want you to build a memorial. I want you to remember this day because you need to know and understand that I'm with you. You need to remember that God has worked before in the past and he will continue to work with you into the future. Which brings us to Joshua 5, because God is preparing them at every stage, but not ready. They're not still not ready to conquer the land. They've come across the Jordan River. They're now camped on the other side of the Jordan River. They're now going into the promised land, but they're still not ready to be used of God. Something big still needed to happen among God's people. Something big still needed to take place within the hearts and the minds of this people. Something memorable needed to happen. And I want you to watch what happens here, beginning in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Because this is what happens first and foremost in the story, and we're going to walk through it together. The Lord strikes fear into their opponents. He strikes fear into their opponents. Look at it in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were, were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, look at what happens. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So word gets out. Word gets out that God's people, the Israelites, have come across the Jordan River, have come into this land. The Israelites had followed God. They'd come across the Jordan River. Now they're camped on the other side of the Jordan River. And there are these kings, the Amorite kings, who were in the mountains west of the Jordan. You've got the Canaanite kings right there in verse 1, who were in the plains, if you will, of the, on the other side of the Jordan. These kings hear about Israel. They hear about what has happened, and they knew what had happened. This was a formidable army, yes, but they knew that they had God's power, God's mighty power, and God's mighty presence among them. And what does it say that they were in verse 1? They're terrified. I mean, look at, the, look at what it says and how it describes them. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because the people of Israel They were poised to take the land. God's people are poised to take the land. The hearts of the people, uh, their opponents, have lost the spirit. They've lost their courage. They've lost their willingness and their willingness to fight Israel in every respects. But God's not done preparing his people. You see, verse 1 then leads to verse 2 because the story's not about verse 1. The story's really about verse 2 and beyond and what's going on here on the front end of the story. You see, God strikes fear in the hearts of his people, of the the enemies or the opponents of his people, but then he's going to prepare his people before they even engage in the work that God wants them to do. He's going to prepare them by doing two things. He calls them to covenant renewal, and then he's going to call them to a covenant meal. 
Stay with me. He's going to call them here to a covenant renewal. Something has to happen in their hearts. Listen. And then he's going to call them to this covenant meal, and then he's going to send them on their way. Something big and memorable needed to happen. Already God has split the Jordan River. Already they are remembering by way of building this memorial to what God did. Now God wants all of them. He wants their hearts. He wants to reestablish this personal relationship that he has with his people. And so the Lord calls them to a covenant renewal. Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord says to Joshua, that's their leader, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. God's going to do something big here, y'all. I mean, what God's going to do here is he's going to, to, to call out his people once again. The Lord doesn't call them to attack. I mean, think in terms of the adrenaline that had to have been flowing in the lives of the people here. I mean, they just saw God split the Jordan River. They know that their enemies already are fearful. They've sent spies into Jericho. They know that they've already got that city. They know that God's already doing this work and has already brought their enemies to their knees. They even had, haven't had to pull their swords out of their, their sheaths yet. And yet, in all of the adrenaline, in all of the excitement, in all of the joy, what does God say? He doesn't tell them to go. He tells them to what? Stop because he's got to do something more in their hearts. And so what he's going to do, he's going to call them to covenant renewal. How? Through circumcision. Now look at verse 2. Verse 2 again, let's look at it again. It says, at that time, in that space, in that moment, there is this emotional high among God's people. In that emotional high, God steps in to Joshua's life, and Joshua steps into the lives of the people, and he says, okay, I want you to go circumcise all the men who are among God's people. The second time. Now listen, circumcision, I'm not going to get into the details, but it was a common practice. But for the Israelites, there was a whole nother meaning. This isn't the first time that God has brought them to circumcision. It was the second time. The first time comes, of course, in all the way back in Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 17, where Abram enters into this covenant with God. And in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, this is what it says. God says and comes to Abraham and says this in verse 9. It says, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. Now listen, verse 10, this is my covenant, a commitment, which you shall keep between me and you. Your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And he goes on to describe the meaning and the significance of it. What is circumcision? Well, it was a sign of a commitment or a covenant between God and his people. It was a, it, it, the people of God bore the mark of that fact that they belonged to God. They belonged to our Father in heaven. They belonged to him. They were a special people. They were a distinct people. They were set apart. This is what God is doing through circumcision. Those who were part of the circumcision were part of this covenant. Who had been circumcised were part of this covenant. They were not excluded. Those who were not were excluded, rather, from this. So generation after generation, this is what God is doing. The men as young as eight years old, they're being circumcised, which means they are set apart for God's people. Here's the problem. The problem was it had begun to stop. The problem was it had become neglected. And how do we know that? Because look down at verse 4. Look at verse 4 in your text. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Listen. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Generation 1 had died off. Generation 2 is here. 
and they've been neglected. So Joshua and the people of God are circumcised. They obey God and they do what God wants them to do. And there's something big about what the Lord is doing here. Listen, church, what the Lord's doing here is he's renewing their relationship. He's renewing this covenant, this commitment between himself and his people, between his people and himself. God's renewing this work in their lives. He's restoring the nation to himself. He's restoring the people to himself that they would listen to him, that they would follow him. Look down at verse 8 and 9, because this is what God does in light of their circumcision. Look at it. When the, circumc- when, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Now listen, listen to what it says in verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so that the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. That word reproach is simply shame. They were slaves in generation one, were slaves in Egypt. They had no no rest, they had no land, they had no blessing, they had no life. But God was changing all of that. God had changed all of that. He was giving all of these things to them, and circumcision was a big deal to the Lord. It was a sign that they would forever belong to him, that they would forever follow him. But the Lord was still not done preparing his people. He caused them to renew the covenant, then he caused them to a covenant meal. Now watch what happens in verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of, the Jericho, of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate in the produce of the land unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is a big turning point for the nation. This is a big turning point for the people because up until this people, up until this point, this, this place in, in, in the history of Israel, God's people didn't live off of the land. They didn't find food among themselves in the desert. God every morning would give them manna. He would give them sustenance. He would sustain them every day. He would give them the bread that kept them alive every day. He sustained their life. They literally were, 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 were part of his. They, they, they were kept alive by the Lord himself. And then he brings them into the promised land. He's got them here on the banks of the Jordan River. And he brings them to this Passover meal, this covenant meal, this time of celebration. We see that in Exodus chapter 12 when you read about this Passover meal. The 14th day every year. And it marked the departure from Egypt and the entrance into the promised land. You see, the Lord was spiritually preparing his people. He's spiritually preparing them. And he's reminding them of who he is and what he does for them. They didn't need weapons to come into the promised land. Listen, they needed more of him. And that's so key. They didn't need their military prowess. They didn't need the strength of their their numbers or the strength of their their weaponry. They needed the Lord. They needed him. They needed more of him. They needed to be belonging to him. They needed to be filled with him. They needed to be all in for the Lord. And here in chapter 5, the Lord reminds us what he's reminding them. Because what the Lord reminds us is this. The Lord blesses those, listen, who are deeply committed to him. 
The Lord blesses those who are deeply committed to him. You see, he looks to those who belong to him and who are committed to trusting him by faith with what? Lifelong obedience. Lifelong obedience. You see, when you look at this story and what the Lord is doing here for his people is the same that the Lord does for us and that he calls us to. He calls us to lifelong and deep commitment to him. You see, what the, what the Lord requires before you go any further in your spiritual journey, because all of us are on a spiritual journey, some of you may not have given your life to Jesus Christ yet, so you haven't started that spiritual journey, but for those who have given your life to Jesus Christ, what God does is he, he comes into our life and, and we have this spiritual journey, but what he does is he requires this deep commitment to him. I want you to think about the people of God here and what's going on before they're, before they're going to do the work that God's going to do in them in the book of Joshua, if you've read ahead. I mean, he's going to bring spiritual victory after spiritual victory into their lives. That wasn't the issue. The Lord was going to do the work. The Lord was going to, to bring about the spiritual victory, but God's people had to be spiritually ready, ready, listen, for their spiritual fight. They need to be ready for the spiritual fight. They had to have the want to, the willingness to trust and to do the things that God wanted them to do even when it didn't make any sense. They had to be willing to march around the city of Jericho several times and not shoot one arrow at that city wall. They had to be willing to trust the Lord. They had to be willing to be in the fight. You see, God's going to bring the victory. He was going to bring about the, spirit, the, the victories in the promised land. But it wasn't about them, the people of God, bringing about the victory. It was about God doing this work. What he wanted in the hearts and the minds of the people was a deep commitment to trust and to follow his way even when it didn't make sense. And if they'll followed his way, that's the spiritual fight. That's the ability to look beyond your feelings and your emotions and what makes logical sense to follow the ways of God because God's the one who's going to go before. God's the one who's doing the work ahead. He's already done the work in the past. He's the one who comes and does this work. That's the spiritual fight. It's fighting against your desires to do things your way. And this is what God's doing in the minds and the hearts of his people. He's establishing this. He wants deep commitment from them. I mean, they got to really trust him as grown men to be circumcised. Y'all with me? That's got to be a deep commitment. And yet that's what they do. They follow him. Not, not 95% of them follow him. 100% of them follow him. Why? Because they've seen what God has done and they know what God is doing and know what God wants to do in their lives. So how does this happen? Well, listen, I think that, that deep commitment to the Lord is that the Lord is looking for in your life. It begins by not by you moving towards God, but by God moving before and towards you. You see the same problem. Listen, stay with me. The same problem in our lives is the same problem that was existing in the lives of God's people then. We are by nature people who resist God. We, we really like our independence. We, we really like to do things our way. We wrestle with this before we're Christians, and we wrestle with this at times after we're Christians. But listen how Romans describes this problem. The same problem that exists in our hearts, the same problem that existed in Israel, but it begins with God's movement towards us. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's by nature who we are. It's not done. Romans tells us more. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. There's more. In chapter 2, verse 12 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the uh, I'm sorry, for all have sinned without, without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What is he talking about? He's talking about Gentiles, and he's talking about Jews. He's saying even with the Jews without the law and the Jews with the law are both condemned. The Jews and the Gentiles, we're all condemned in some respects. Chapter 3, verse 9 says, what then? Are we Jews who are better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We know these verses, right? Chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God sees us for who we are. And Romans chapter 5 then goes on to say that, listen, that's not where we, his, God leaves us. He doesn't leave us helpless. He moves towards us. Listen, just as God moved towards the Israelites in Israel in this space, in this moment, in this time, what God does in our lives is he moves towards us through his son, Jesus Christ. He sees us helpless. He sees us cut off. But in chapter 5, verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. God did not leave us where we are, which is why Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved from that. We, we are cut off from, from, from God, yes. We are, we, are, we, are, we are separated from God, yes. But listen, God, deep commitment to the Lord doesn't begin with you having a want to. It begins with the Lord already having moved towards you. He's already moved towards you. He's already moved towards me. And so where does it go from there? Well, the deep commitment that the Lord requires and wants from my heart is then expressed through faith. You've got to believe. You've got to surrender to what the Lord wants in your heart and in your life. You've got to believe in him, and you've got to surrender to his will. You've got to surrender to his way. His way is better. His path is better. His direction for your life is better. By faith, you move forward, and that faith then leads to, listen, a realized identity. God wants deep faith in your life, but it doesn't begin with you. It begins with God moving towards you, and then once he moves towards you and you realize that and you see it and you understand the truth, then by faith, you respond to it. Then he changes your identity. You are no longer, listen, slaves of unrighteousness. Some of you are slaves to things in your hearts and your lives right now. This is why you need Jesus Christ. Because every time you attempt to try to kick this or kick that, you can't kick this or that because you're trying to draw upon a strength that has, has, has boundaries, has limitations. That's you, your will. But what the Lord does in your life and what he does is he steps into your life. He enables you to say no to sin because you're no longer a slave to unrighteousness. By faith, you have believed in Jesus Christ. That identity now belongs to you. You are no longer a slave to unrighteousness. You are a slave to righteousness. And your identity as a child of God has changed. 
Your identity now has changed. You are not a slave to unrighteousness and to sin. You are now a slave to Jesus Christ and to follow him with your heart, your mind, and your strength and your soul. Listen, God puts in your heart a new life. He does something new in you. He does not give you a better version of you. He gives you a new you. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Then he calls you to baptism, right? Because when you give your life to Jesus Christ, then you are baptism. See, in this, as a child of God, that is expressed in the new covenant because that is the new covenant between Jesus Christ and you. Listen, stay with me. The new covenant is between you and Jesus, and now this, we, do not, we are not circumcised, we are baptized. We are then baptized by way of our faith. We believe in Jesus Christ and then be baptized, which is why Jesus said to us in Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20, he says, go into all the world and what? Make disciples, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Once we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we enter into a new covenant with him, and therefore we are then baptized. We are not circumcised, we are baptized, which is the mark by which we then enter into this new relationship with Jesus Christ. Your identity as a member of the Christian community, listen, the church is expressed regularly in coming to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. That's the covenant meal. To remind you and to remind me of the work of Jesus Christ that has been applied to you. You don't have to get rid of your sin. Jesus Christ has already done that. You've simply entered into this covenant relationship with him. Now listen, your identity, my identity in Jesus, then drives everything in your life. You want to have a deep commitment to the Lord? It begins with the work of the Lord. It then flows to your faith in response to his work, which then in turn changes your identity. You're now no longer you. You're no, now you belong to Jesus Christ, within it, which then is going to drive home your willingness and your desire to follow him fully and wholeheartedly with your life. So how does that practically play itself out in your life? Well, God's the one who defines the family. If you want to know how to have a healthy and a godly marriage, then follow what the Bible says. If you want to know how to have a healthy relationship with your kids, follow what the Bible says. I mean, this is what Paul says. This is practically speaking how you live your life out in your home. Ephesians 5 and 6 explain it to us. Ephesians 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. There's that work towards us. Gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then he goes on to describe, listen, how you live righteously in your home. You want to be, you want to know how to have a godly relationship with your husband, wives? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, their, to everything to their husbands. Men, you want to know how to be godly husbands to your wives? Follow what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You think about the weight 
the magnitude of what and how the Apostle Paul is describing your relationship with your spouse as a husband. He goes on to talk about and describing these things. You want to know how to have a healthy relationship with your kids if you have kids in your home? Children, obey your parents, it says in Ephesians 6, in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the lands. Dads, fathers, do not provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. You want to have a deep commitment to the Lord, then that's going to then change how your identity is going to drive everything in your life. It influences your parenting. It influences your relationship and your marriage. It influences your giving. Think about what Paul and how Paul describes the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says first that they gave themselves to the Lord and then they gave this incredible offering to God's people. It's going to inform and drive your giving. It's going to inform and drive your your priorities. You will begin to develop a kingdom mindset. What Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and on into 7 and 8, right? One of the things that he says there is is to have a kingdom mindset. Build up your treasures not on earth but in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. It's going to influence and it's going to impact your mission. You see, because before you take take Jesus to lost people, you have to take lost people to Jesus in your prayer life. You pray for them. You you, you beg God for their hearts and for their souls and for their minds, and then you begin to go share share the gospel with them. Your identity in Christ, listen, that is, is going to influence and it's going to drive everything in your life, including your relationship with the local church. Think about it here at Central. It becomes a necessity in your life. The church becomes what you build your life around, not in an addition to, not a social club, not one of the clubs of Livingston, Texas, or Polk County, or some other kind of faction in your life. It becomes your life. Because when you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you've also then given your life to God's people. This is his plan, is to commit ourselves to him by way of giving ourselves to each other because this is the metaphor that the Lord uses for us. We are the what? Body of Christ. So in other words, if you want to follow Jesus with your life, then you ought to be following him in the context and then under the authority of a local church because that is the body of Christ. That is the display case of Jesus to its community, to every community, wherever it is, whether it's in Africa, whether it's across Europe, or whether it's here in the United States in little old Livingston, Texas, and Polk County, in the context of the big world we live in. We are the display case, and therefore we have this deep commitment to the Lord, we have this deep commitment to to his people, and that is where we're growing in our likeness of Jesus Christ and where we're loving each other. Now, here's the thing. I think the greatest hindrance in our life, the greatest hindrance to God, if you will, working in my life, in your life, is mediocrity. It's apathy. It's indifference. We all fight it, don't we? This kind of autopilot we go on when it comes to following God with our hearts this apathy when it comes to following Jesus, this kind of feeling as though we're going through the motions. Here's how the Bible describes that. It describes it in terms of losing our first love. We begin to lose our first love. 
mean, think in terms of if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, remember what it was like to realize, to wake up one day and to realize that all that you have done in your past, all that you have done in your present, all the sins that you will do in the future have been already bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. It has already been taken care of, the penalty of that sin in the life of Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. Remember the weight that was lifted from your shoulders of guilt. That love that you had for Jesus. The Bible describes it sometimes when we grow into seasons of apathy or indifference in our life of losing our first love. You see, David in the Old Testament experienced this. It's what led him to spiritual drift. It's what led him to sin in the arena of adultery and murder. And if you read Psalm 51, listen. If you read Psalm 51, it is David pouring out his heart to the Lord and asking him to do a new work in his heart. I mean, David in the Bible was described as a man after God's own heart. I mean, that is weighty. Those are weighty words. But he spiritually drifted. He started focusing on the wrong things. He started not being in the place that God wanted him to be, and he began to drift spiritually. He grew apathetic and indifferent to his passion and his burning passion to follow God fully with his heart and with his life. And it inevitably led him to a place of being broken once again by way of adultery and murder. But do you remember the words that David says in Psalm 51? He says this to the Lord. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Remember that? He says to the Lord, Lord, renew a steadfast spirit within me. He, he, he then goes on to say, restore the joy of my salvation. Because in that season, he wasn't experiencing a lot of joy. And in that season, he knew he was broken because of his sin. And he needed a renewal of his heart. Listen, church, if you want to have a deep commitment to the Lord, it begins with this relationship you have with Jesus. Where you ask the Lord to begin moving your heart, to give you a renewal, a new love for him, a fresh love for him, a fresh love for the things that he loves and a hatred for the things that he hates. And a desire and a willingness to obey him and to love him. John 14, 21 speaks of this idea of if you love me, then you will obey me, Jesus was telling his disciples. And so when it comes to this greatest hindrance, I believe it's, it's this apathy, it's this mediocrity when it comes to our commitment to Jesus Christ. But listen, the pathway to spiritual victory, listen, the pathway to spiritual victory is a deep commitment to the Lord. I want you to consider this. Because on the cross, what Jesus did for you and what he did for me was he rolled away our reproach. He rolled it away. All the shame, just as he is doing here in, 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 in Joshua chapter 5 with his people, what God does through Jesus Christ is he rolls away our reproach. You see, the Passover, this particular covenant meal, points us to the Savior's sacrifice. Spiritual victory, listen, is guaranteed. It is guaranteed for you. It is guaranteed for me, for those who by faith in Christ meet the conditions of, that, of God's covenant. 
And so listen, he uses people who are deeply committed to him. Walk by faith. Walk by faith. Deeply be committed to him by trusting in him. Trust and be deeply committed to his body, his people. Those committed to his mission. Love his word. Get into his word and read it and meditate on it and pray through it. Live not for the knowledge of what the Bible teaches you, but for what it what is meant to do, and that is to transform you. Allow the Spirit of God to come into your heart in that, in that mountain, in that space of you reading the Bible and let it transform you. Let it change how you think. Let it become the lens by which you look at life and begin to obey it. Listen, when you walk like that in your life, it leads to the blessings of spiritual victory after spiritual victory after spiritual victory. You want to be released from temptation. You want temptations to go away. You want to fight Satan on the forefront of where he is. You commit yourself to be deeply committed to the Lord, and you put yourself before the Lord and allow him to then begin to transform you and shape you and change you. How does God define deep commitment? Well, it begins with Jesus, doesn't it? And so listen, this morning, you got to give, be committed to, to Christ, first and foremost. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Listen, what God wants for you is to be deeply committed to him. And maybe this morning you just need to confess some sin before him. Maybe you need to, where you're standing in a moment or where you want to come and you want to come here at the front and pray over some area of your life, over something that God wants to deal with you in regards to, let him deal with you. Allow the Holy Spirit to come and work in your heart. Move in your heart. Speak into your, into your heart. And simply say yes to him. Simply turn away from what God wants you to turn away from and start trusting him. Tell him that you want to be deeply committed to him. Help him. Help me, Lord, to be deeply committed to you. Pray that to the Lord. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Listen, what God wants for you, if you don't know him, if you're personal Savior and your Lord, Jesus Christ has already done this work for you. He enables you to carry out what he wants you to do in your life. But you've got to surrender to him. If you want to be deeply committed to him, surrender to him. He wants to change you. He gives you that opportunity here this morning. I'm going to be here at the front as we sing and worship him. We're going to sing as a congregation this song, and we're going to worship him. It's a time of response. But don't walk away from his word without responding in some way to him. And maybe this morning God is speaking to you, telling you to come and give your life to Jesus. Or come and be baptized. Or come and join our church. Or maybe God's speaking to you about ministry. Maybe God is speaking to you about some other area of your life. Listen, I'll be here at the front to pray with you. If you want to make decisions, I'll be here at the front to help you through that decision. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to stand and sing this song and worship him. And you have the courage to come. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for how it instructs us and guides us. Thank you for how it leads us to you. God, open our hearts and our minds to you. Do a work in us as individuals. Do a work in us collectively. And Lord, would you meet us where we are? We need you to meet us where we are. We're here 
We're praying. We're asking you for things. Lord, we're asking you to move. And we ask you, Lord, to move in us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.